Welcome back. It's great to be with you again. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering regulatory affairs around the globe. James Paniki is my name and I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. Today's news would be of great interest to anyone with a LinkedIn profile or anyone who has ever used cloud storage service Dropbox. A Russian hacker by the name of Yevgeny Nikolin has been found guilty in a US court in San Francisco of hacking LinkedIn and Dropbox some eight years ago. It was a long, controversial trial because, as our reporting has suggested, there was no smoking gun, no jaw-dropping evidence, just a pile of circumstantial evidence that eventually all added up to a jury finding Nicolin guilty. The trial was also noteworthy because it was a mainly but not entirely online affair as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak in the US. MLEX's senior correspondent for data privacy and security is Amy Miller, and she followed the case through the final stretch with our digital risk chief global correspondent, Mike Swift, covering it before that. Both Amy and Mike join us now from San Francisco. So, Amy, let's uh, start with you. For those unfamiliar with the case, in just a few words, who is Yevgeny Nikolin and uh, what has he now been found guilty of doing? He's a 32-year-old Russian national who's been found guilty on nine criminal counts of breaking into the computer networks of Dropbox, LinkedIn, and Formspring. That was in uh, 2012 and 2013. The jury found him guilty on July 20th. And uh, the third of those companies is no longer um, operational, right? So we're really just uh, the, the, the main, the, the real protagonist here is LinkedIn. That is the most significant player and Dropbox. That's correct. Formspring is now defunct. Okay, as for the trial itself, I suppose the most remarkable part of this prosecution was the absence of strong evidence linking Nicolin to the hacks. Just what evidence were prosecutors able to bring to the table? Well, uh, for three days, the FBI's key witness, uh, Special Agent Jeffrey Miller, testified on providing the minute details of his investigation and what he uncovered. And basically, they came up with the theory that there was a trail of digital breadcrumbs leading straight to Nikulin. And it all began with the email address chinabig01 at gmail.com. That investigators testified that that email is connected to all three hacks by a series of identical IP addresses. And so by tracking the account search histories and IP addresses, uh, they were able to link to other on- online accounts that he had connected to, were, that were connected to the same email address. And then they were able to glean enough evidence to pinpoint where the owner of that email uh, lived in Moscow. And that was an address associated with uh, Nikolin. Um, but there was no real smoking gun, so to speak, evidence connecting uh, Nicolin directly to the hacks. Um, the FBI admitted on cross-exam that they hadn't found any, hadn't collected any evidence that Nicolin had made any money on the hacks. And Nicolin's defense attorney really drove that point home during the trial. Uh, he was pointing out that the DOJ had no physical evidence that Nicolin was the actual person sitting at the computer keyboard carrying out the hacks. And so importantly, there was no, there was no money trail. Exactly. But nonetheless, the jury uh, was uh, convinced by all of that circumstantial evidence that the FBI put forward, right? Well, sometimes the Miller's testimony was so detailed it could become confusing and complicated. Uh, William uh, Judge Alsop even commented at one point that the DOJ needed to liven things up, and he criticized the DOJ's case more than once, saying there just wasn't enough evidence linking the hacks to Nicolin. Uh, But the DOJ kept reassuring Judge Alsop that more was coming, and they said they had a breakthrough, and I think the biggest key 
key evidence was um, that this email, uh, one email address was tied to another email address that was connected to a social media account that was controlled by Nicolin. And so uh, from there, they were able to connect that to his, his girlfriend and his brother who had sent messages. That was really the strongest piece of direct evidence linking them. But the circumstantial evidence was a lot stronger. Uh, and uh, Miller said he found evidence connecting Nicolin to known uh, cyber criminals in Russia. Uh, he had videos of him that he had uh, with a guy named Oleksandr Iremenko. He's a 27-year-old Ukrainian who was charged with breaking into the U.S. Uh, SEC Commission's computer system and stealing some non-public financial information. And they found Skype chats on Iremenko's computer showing that he had transmitted stolen LinkedIn passwords with uh, Nicolin. And uh, his computer contained videos uh, that showed Nicolin attending a meeting of computer hackers in Moscow at a hotel in 2012. Iremenko described that as a summit of bad mother effers. <laughs> and there were, uh, there were pictures of him with also another uh, known cyber criminal named Nikita uh, Kislitsyn. He'd been charged with trafficking and stolen passwords and credentials from Formspring. Um, and I think the jury also saw some videos of Nicolin and his friends driving around in a black Bentley. Uh, they were zooming in on people less fortunate that were standing on the side of the road in the freezing Russian winter. Uh, there's also evidence from Nicolin himself in his own words. Uh, he was recorded on phone calls uh, when he was being held in federal custody, uh, admitting that he was a hacker. Uh, he was talking with his girlfriend, and she was complaining about what time he was calling her. And she, he said, what's the problem? I hacked 20 websites you know, 24-7. I hacked. And so uh, the defense tried to argue that that was sarcastic. Um, it, it could be misinterpreted the way everyone misinterprets an email. But I think that that was some of the strongest circumstantial evidence that they had. And you also covered the uh, testimony of the star witness of the prosecution, FBI Special Agent Jeffrey Miller. Obviously, no relation of yours, unless there's something that I'm missing here in this story. But yes. um, uh, what? How did he come across? How uh, how strong a witness was he? He was a pretty strong witness. Uh, I think this was one of his early cases. The defense uh, had tried to argue that he was biased, that he was just too invested in this case, and he was. You know, overlooking bad evidence because he was so desperate for a conviction, um, but he was a he was a solid witness. Uh, he he admitted when he didn't have evidence, and he was pretty clear about where he got his evidence. And he he didn't get flustered on cross exam, and he he pretty much stuck to the story. So uh, he had a little bit of I think maybe a little bit of a, an attitude, I guess, when he was being cross examined. But I think that happens to everyone on on the stand. So I thought he did a pretty good job. Mike, let me bring you into the conversation. What do you think is the significance of this case now that it's uh, wrapped up? Well, a couple of things. Um, you know, one, is, as Amy mentioned, um, Nikulin was allegedly tied to um, this group of uh, international cyber hackers uh, headed by uh, Alexander Eremenko, the uh, Ukrainian guy who hacked into the servers of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, and also of um, a newswire. Uh, he's also accused of hacking into a newswire and um, stealing uh, press releases of companies before they went public. And they are able in both of those cases to sort of use that advance information to make a whole lot of money on the stock market by trading on information that investors didn't have yet. Aramenko's under indictment, although he's still at large, and uh, he's charged with uh, making $30 million in illegal profits uh, for through that illegal 
trading. So, you know, the the DOJ called it a, a criminal clique that uh, Nikulin was allegedly involved with, and and. Um, you know, it, the trial did give us a bit of a window into, um, you know, this sort of uh, uh, sort of high rolling world where these guys are making tens of millions of dollars, it would appear, and, uh, you know, driving around in Bentleys in, uh, in Moscow. So so that was something that was really interesting about it. Um, one thing we were all wondering and really didn't come out at the trial was whether the Russian government had any role here. And that, that really never got alleged against Nikulin. Well, the fact that Nikulin was present in in the courtroom in the first place is, I suppose, a, a notable fact because the Russian government could have blocked his extradition and could have ultimately have uh, stopped him from showing up in court. Is that something, uh, Mike, that has been uh, considered or discussed or remarked upon? Well, in fact, there was a huge um, arm wrestling fight between the United States and the Russian Federation over Nikulin. He was originally arrested in 2016 in the Czech Republic, and it took 18 months before the U.S. won that 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 fight and basically uh, got the rights to extradite him to San Francisco. So um, that's I mean he, he's already been um, in in prison for four years at this point. So which is an extremely long time before facing trial. So uh, in fact, uh, Russia really wanted him back. We don't know what else he knows about um, uh, nefarious deeds potentially by by the government on in cyberspace. But, uh, you know, that that was uh, definitely a subtext here. Well, can, can I just add something? Sure. Nicolin's sure. defense attorney did mention to the jury in closing arguments that he believed that Nicolin had been framed by the Russian government. That was one of his defenses for him during the trial. Amy, another thing is that, uh, as you've already mentioned, the judge obviously was concerned by the level of complexity of the uh, information which has been presented by the jury. The jury, for whatever reason, uh, was not overwhelmed by that in the sense that they were able to reach a, a guilty verdict at the end of the process. So does that, I suppose, augur well for future trials of this kind? It just means that even if there's a lot of complex detail on the table, a jury is ultimately capable of uh, dealing with it. I think so. I was confused as a reporter following it, and the judge was confused following it, but I think that the DOJ managed to pull it all together in their closing arguments and really present the arguments and pull all the pieces together in a way that the jury could understand. And even though there wasn't a smoking gun, I think, so to speak, that he had actually sold data and made money from it, uh, the evidence was warm enough, and I think the circumstantial evidence was strong enough that those two things combined, it, they, they did manage to win the case. It, it can be won, even without an abundance of direct evidence. Mike, what's your take on that? You've been following it for a, a little bit longer. Do you think that this uh, does uh, mean that the prospects are good um, moving forward? Yeah, I, I would agree. And just to, to, to sort of add what Amy just said, that um, uh, Nicolin's uh, defense lawyer, Adam Gassner, felt uh, very strongly that there's kind of a bias in the U.S. that uh, it, because of what happened uh, with the 2016 elections here, that if a jury, if a if an American jury hears, you know, a Russian accused of hacking, they're going to leap to the assumption that 
the guy's guilty. He actually did it. And um, as Amy mentioned, Judge Alsop over and over again was sort of bemoaning the lack of, you know, the weakness of the government's um, evidence. But um, it would suggest would seem that the government, if they're able to prosecute more folks like this, they might stand a very good chance of success with a jury just sort of um, based on the relatively weak evidence they had in this case. And Mike, what's next for Nickel? And I know there's some um, debate about whether it should be pronounced Nicolin or Nicolin, but let's just go for Nicolin <laughs> at the moment. Uh, what's next for him? How much time could he spend in jail as a result of this conviction? So he faces a statutory maximum of um, at least 10 years in prison. Um, he's already served 44 months, so uh, almost four years. So um, conceivably, he could uh, be facing another six years in federal prison based on if he um, if he's uh, sentenced to the full maximum of the law. There's a lot of doubt about that. It depends on uh, whether um, the sentences he would get for each of the nine counts, the, the nine felonies for which he was found guilty, if he's allowed to serve uh, the sentences for those con- uh, at the same time, or if they would be, you know, consecutive. So that that we don't know. Um, his defense attorney uh, plans to appeal uh, the verdict, and also will be seeking um, his release based on time he's already served when he's sentenced uh, in September. So we'll have to see. Uh, it's possible that he is at risk, though, of spending a, a n- many more years in prison. And what was the ultimate uh, impact on the hacked uh, companies, Mike? What redress do they have available to them, if any? So, um, you know, ultimately, um, this did cost them some money. Um, On the very first day of the trial, back in March, um, LinkedIn's, a, a couple of LinkedIn executives testified about um, the very sophisticated means that uh, the attacker used to break into their system. And um, at that time, LinkedIn was a much smaller company that had much uh, fewer resources than it does now. I mean, this was eight years ago. And they felt um, at that time, this is an existential crisis for our company. We could lose everything. And uh, basically for about a week, I mean, everybody at LinkedIn was essentially just trying to work this problem and, and get it stopped. Um, they did face litigation because of this breach. It wasn't a huge financial penalty, but we don't know how much it cost them to defend that. So, um, you know, there was an impact. I mean, ultimately, I don't think that LinkedIn has a reputation as having weak security. So you could say the impact was pretty limited. But, um, you know, I, I know that they were quite happy that uh, that uh, Nikulin was convicted. Okay, um, Amy, uh, the issue of how these trials are managed uh, uh, during the COVID-19 outbreak is something that jurisdictions all around the world are grappling with at the moment. So this is, in a way, a good illustration of how a complex case with a jury can be managed. Um, So how was it managed? What kind of measures were put in place to make this trial uh, go forward? Well, first off, it was broadcast on Zoom. Uh, which was very unusual. They were. This was one of two tr- criminal trials that were going on in the Northern District of California at the same time. So they were really uh, sort of a guinea pig for for the process. Um, and I felt like they could use a little assistance from Zoom. Uh, they had a little issues initially of figuring out where to get the cameras so that you could see the witnesses. So the first day that we came back, um, you you couldn't see the witness, but they figured that out and fixed it. And they had some issues with showing some of the evidence. Um, 
but other than that, I think it went pretty smoothly as far as using Zoom. Um, the trial wasn't Zoom bombed where obscenities <laughs> appear from a hacker. That. If a hacker had hacked a trial of a hacker, that would have been the ultimate irony, I suppose. I that would, would have been cool. I would assume. <laughs> I, I would assume so. Yes, I'm. I'm guessing the court system had some pretty strong security in place, though, to make sure that that didn't happen. Um, not, not not anyone could just log in uh, and be seen on the screen. You had to be accepted and admitted. So it wasn't just like anyone could log in. Um, but beyond that, they uh, everyone in the courtroom had to wear a mask. The only person who, who didn't wear a mask was the person testifying. That included the defendant, everybody, the judge. And the jurors were, were not sitting in where they normally sit right next to each other in a little area for the jury. They were spread out in, in the gallery where the public and the, and the lawyers typically uh, sit. So they were spread out at least six feet apart. And uh, somebody came in and cleaned in the morning and they cleaned in the evening. And somebody would clean the stand after the witnesses were gone. And uh, when the jurors left, Judge Alsop made sure to tell them to please contact the court if any of them got sick because they wanted to notify everybody in the courtroom uh, if, if anybody had gotten sick. But so far, we haven't heard anything. And given that the jury and the, 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 the operation of the jury is so central to these cases, did any of the jurors express any safety concerns? They did. They did. Uh, several expressed safety concerns and four we actually lost four jurors, uh, some due to uh, having to take care of other people or they were really concerned about uh, being exposed. But I think a couple of people that had some concerns were convinced to stay. Uh, a couple of them had raised concerns. They were said, okay, well, after you've talked to me and explained how this is going to work, I, I think you know they, they agreed to do it. So I was really surprised that 12 actually stayed. They had agreed that they would take as few as uh, – the lawyers, excuse me, had agreed that they would take as few as six jurors. So they got more than they were expecting. There were some real difficult choices to be made at the beginning of the trial, too, when they were uh, picking a jury, because that was right when the pandemic was taking off, you know, the first week of March. And one of the jury candidates was a doctor uh, who was a frontline person at her clinic on, on COVID. And she was like, Judge, you have to let me out. You know, we're seeing this explosion of cases and you could just see Judge Alsop just really, he was really sort of conflicted. He sat there in silence for like 30 seconds. And then he said, no, I'm sorry, I can't excuse you. And that was quite a moment. Um, so there were, there were a lot of difficult, difficult choices for the judge, I think, as well as, you know, the jurors. That, that doctor ended up staying on the jury. Right. Uh, she, she didn't ask to be excused. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, if, if the members of the jury had had any uh, urgent medical problems, at least a doctor would have been on hand. So there was that positive side to it. Guys, it's been great talking. Let's uh, catch up again very soon. Thank you. Thanks, James. Amy Miller is our Senior Correspondent for Data Privacy and Security. And Mike Swift is, of course, MLEX's Digital Risk Chief Global Correspondent. And both of them joined us from San Francisco, California. And we'll post a link to Mike and Amy's final analysis of the trial at our website, which is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X-marketinsight.com. Just click on the Insight Center tab. That's all for today. We'll be back in your podcast feed next Friday at more or less the same time. I hope you can join us then. I'm James Paniki, Senior Editor with MLEX's Asia Pacific team. Thank you very much for your company. See you again soon. Bye for now.